Worship, corporate worship, is important to God. Christ said in John 4, verse 23, that God seeks those who will worship Him. Verse 24 says, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Your presence here this morning is meaningful. Every person is here, hopefully, to worship God. When we lift our voices together, our minds together, in worship of Him, we make it important to us just as it is important to God. When we go through the elements that He set before us in singing and prayer, study of God's Word, the Lord's Supper, and contribution, then we honor Him by obeying His commandments. We do that here together in a corporate way, in a family-integrated format that we find in God's Word as the pattern for worship to Him. We're very thankful that each and every person is here, and we're glad that you are participating in this very important worship that we lift God up, and as a secondary benefit, we are edified and inspired and built up ourselves. We are closer to God because of our worship together. If you're visiting here this morning, we're especially glad to have you and would invite you to be here at every opportunity that you might have. This morning, we're going to look at the subject of the, Holy, the work of the Holy Spirit in our time. This is going to be a follow-up sermon to things that we studied three weeks ago when we talked about miracles. We took God's Word and we defined a miracle as an act of God superseding or suspending a natural law. We said it's not something amazing that happens in nature. It's something over and above nature. It's supernatural. It's not God's providence where He works His will through natural means. And we talked about the purpose of miracles being threefold, to cause men to believe in the Lord, to confirm His Word, to assist in delivering truth to humanity. We read a lot of the accounts of miracles being performed. We talked about Christ, who had a full measure of the Holy Spirit and performed many miracles. The apostles were able to perform miracles. Other men in the first century were able to perform these miracles. And we taught that this was a work of the Holy Spirit that was vital to the church of the first century. But we also saw that the same Bible that records these miracles also teaches that miracles would come to an end. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. That perfect thing coming was the written New Testament. And when it became available to God's people, those miracles were phased out. That particular work of the Holy Spirit ended. And that happened somewhere right around the end of the first century. So why would we talk about the Holy Spirit's work for us today? Someone had requested that this subject of miracles be covered and then after talking with people and discussing with them the fact that this work of the Holy Spirit came to an end, someone brought up the question, well, what does the Holy Spirit do for us today? And I believe that's a very valid question. I believe the Holy Spirit is very active in our lives, and I believe that we can find through God's Word what He does, how He does it, and we can be built up by studying these things together. So let's look at the work of the Holy Spirit in our time. From the outset, we must understand that some questions regarding spiritual issues will not be answered because they have not been revealed. Moses states the principle here in Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So there's certain things that God's Word does not reveal. We know that this is fully sufficient. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We have revealed to us the things that we need to know to understand God and to understand His will. However, there are certain things that God has not chosen to reveal. And we should not wrestle with the unknown to the point that we cause our own confusion, our own discouragement. That's what Peter said, don't rest those things to your own destruction. What we need to do is take what is revealed. And that is certainly the case with the Holy Spirit. Some people think that it's very complicated, that it's very difficult to understand. And there are difficult things to understand about God and His working. But there are simple, straightforward principles that we can learn if we will just go to God's Word and take what is revealed. And that is our goal this morning. I solicit your attention as we study together this morning. We're going to cover a lot of material. We're not going to read every verse that we're going to bring up. Notes to this study are available. If you want to take a deeper dive and read a lot of these verses, well, you would be able to do that on your personal time. But for our purpose this morning, we want to look at the work of the Holy Spirit today. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is not a thing. He's a person. He's a co-equal to God the Father and God the Son. The Bible term for this triad is the Godhead. Some people use the word Trinity that's not found in the Bible, but I believe that term shows us the nature of our God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Someone was trying to describe in a summary statement the roles of each of these different personalities of the Godhead. They said the Father is the divine architect, the Son is the divine redeemer, the Holy Spirit is the divine revealer. And you know, we take God's Word and we study it and, and we feel like we kind of know who God the Father is and who the Son is, Jesus Christ, our Savior, but then for some reason, when we bring up the Holy Spirit, then people have some idea about some mystic, cosmic thing, power that's floating around that we can't know anything about. But the reality is the Holy Spirit can be known. He is revealed in God's Word. The Holy Spirit is referred to 60 times in the Old Testament and 220 times in the New Testament. So we have information. God has revealed things to us that we can know and understand about the Holy Spirit. He is not impersonal or unthinking. The Holy Spirit is composed of intellect, emotion, and will. Here is a chart, maybe a little bit hard for you to, to see, and we're not going to go through this in detail, but this chart shows us, to, to a degree, who the Holy Spirit is. It talks about His attributes, eternal, omnipresent. He has a will, He loves, He speaks. The symbols that we see that represent Him in different places in the Scripture are a dove, a wind, and a fire. We can sin against the Holy Spirit through blasphemy, resisting, or unbelief, insulting, lied to, grieved, quenched. I would say that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was something very specific that they did in the first century. But these are ways that the Holy Spirit was sinned against that we find in Scripture. The Holy Spirit was a great power in Christ's life from His birth all the way through His resurrection. And we can read in these various passages how active the Holy Spirit has been throughout all the ages, and we will note it continues to be in our world today. The Holy Spirit works by indwelling God's people. 
This is going to be a key that we're going to find in understanding the nature of the Holy Spirit, how He works in our lives, how He functions, and the things that we can attribute to Him in our relationship with the Godhead. This indwelling is the same way that we're taught that God dwells in us and that Christ dwells in us. Many hold that the Holy Spirit must be a different type of spirit than the Father and the Son. There's many, many scriptures that indicate to us that God is spirit. He is not any flesh at all. He is completely spirit. One of the passages is in John 4:24 that we mentioned in the beginning. God is a spirit. God the Son in His present state is entirely spirit. He was made flesh when He came to this earth and was born of Mary. The Bible tells us in Matthew 1 that His name was Emmanuel, God with us. When He came to this earth and lived His life and carried out His personal ministry, He was 100% human and 100% God. But when He ascended back into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God, He's Spirit. God is Spirit. Christ is Spirit. Just as the Holy Ghost is Spirit. By the way, that term Holy Ghost is used to describe the Holy Spirit. That word ghost, when it was translated in 1611 to the King James Version, had a different meaning than it does today. When we hear the word ghost, we think of an apparition. But the meaning of that word was guest. The Holy Guest. And that word is very applicable, as we will see this morning, because the Holy Spirit dwells within us as a invited guest into our heart. He doesn't force His way in. He doesn't make a robot out of us to obey and, and follow after His will. But He's a guest that is invited in. And we're going to look at these Scriptures that talk about being dwelled not only by the Holy Guest, but also by God and by Christ. Spirits can't be described by physical dimensions of width, depth, and height. You can't approach a spirit with the five senses. We can't see, hear, touch, taste, or smell. Spirits move in and out without the confinements of our physical world. You might say that they exist in another dimension. And what we find taught in God's Word is that God is Spirit, that Christ is Spirit, and that this Holy Guest is Spirit. Turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to read in verses 18 and 19. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Of course, this is speaking to a child of God, a group of, of Christians at Corinth that had obeyed the gospel. They had a relationship with God. And here we see that one reason given for fleeing sexual sin is that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because of this, we should not commit fornication or other sin in our body. So is the Holy Spirit in our body. This verse says that He is. says that He is in us. As we talked about miracles a few weeks ago, and we talked about the work of the Holy Spirit in the first century, it was the Holy Spirit dwelling in those people that gave them the gifts that they were able to perform. You remember reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where it listed nine of these gifts? And it says these gifts are all given by the self-same Spirit. The Spirit indwelled people at that time and He gave them the ability 
to receive God's message in whatever role that they needed to play in that. Remember, the written New Testament was not available. They needed this work of the Holy Spirit at that time. But also remember that when the, the written New Testament was added to the old written law, the written Word, then God gave His complete and final revelation. So the Holy Spirit does not dwell in us through these gifts that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're not regulated in gifts of the Holy Spirit as they were as we read in 1 Corinthians 14. But that does not negate the fact that the Holy Spirit is still in us. Remember Acts 2 verse 38, the first gospel sermon ever preached, and those people cried out to Peter, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And he said, You need to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We receive an indwelling of the Holy Spirit when we obey the gospel. That Holy Spirit comes inside of us as a holy guest, and it assists us and dwells within us. Turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. In what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God had said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. A quote from earlier that Paul uses here. And what does he say? He says that we are the temple of the living God. He's referring to the Father. Look at verse 18. He says, we are the temple of the Father. In the same way, we are the temple to the Holy Spirit. We are the temple to the Father. He comes in us. He dwells in us. He not only dwells in us, He walks in us. Do you see how this applies to all of the members of the Godhead? Look at Romans 8, verses 9 and 10. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. We see here from verse 15, or I'm sorry, verse number 9, that God dwells in us. Verse number 10, Christ is in us. He says, now if one has not the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. We cannot be Christ's unless Christ is dwelling within us. It says the Spirit, the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of Christ. All three of those terms are used in verse 9. It's almost like they're interchangeable. And in a sense, they are interchangeable because they are the members of the Godhead. And they are perfect in unity and in agreement and in their uh, vision and goals. All of, the, all of the things that they do is in perfect agreement. And so they all dwell in us in a very similar way. The Holy Spirit does not dwell in us in a different way from what Christ does, or in a different way from what God does. When Christ comes into us, our personal will dies. We put out that old man. And then Christ is dwelling within us. Again, we have to invite these members of the Godhead to come and to be an active part in our life. It's a choice that we make. 1 John chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him. He and God, and He and God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and He who abides in love abides in God, and God in Him. The Greek word that is often translated dwell is many times translated abide. It's the Greek word meno, 
And this word abide that we read here in these verses is the exact same word that is translated dwell in the other verses that we have read up until now. We see from verse 15 that God the Father dwells in those who confess Jesus as the Son of God. Each one of us who belong to Christ made that confession. Christ said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father which is in heaven. And so when we obey God and come to Him, initially we confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. When we do that as a part of our conversion process, then the Spirit comes and dwells within us. Just as we read in Acts 2 in verse number 38. We need to ask ourselves, how do we dwell in God? Do you notice in this verse, it says God dwells in us, but it says we dwell in Him. You remember back in Genesis chapter 1, along about verse 26, God created His crowning work in all of creation, and that was humanity. And He said, I have created you in My image. He put a little piece of Himself inside of us that's eternal. It's a soul and it's a spirit. And I believe the same way that God dwells in us through spirit, He comes into us, He connects with our spirit, and we dwell with Him with our spirit. We can't dwell in God physically. We're all here. We're we're physical We can't take God's Word and eat it up and and swallow it and have God inside of us and dwell in Him in that way. But we do that in a spiritual sense. Let's turn to John chapter 15, verses 4 through 7. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. So here's a parable about the vine and the branches. Christ, again, is using this word, meno. Abide in me, or dwell in me, and I in you. And he's pointing out that in a plant, which they were very familiar with the grape plant, there was a stem that was connected to the ground with the roots, and then... Connected to that stem was branches. And Christ says, I am that stem or that trunk of the plant. And He says, you are the branches. And He says, you bear fruit. But He says, you abide in Me because you're connected me to Me as a branch and you receive the nurturing fluid that comes into you and provides life. And remember, we're talking about a spiritual application. Christ is our trunk. We are the branches. We're only able to have life because we're plugged in. We're dwelling in Him. But He is also dwelling in us because He is the one that is delivering what makes it us to have the ability to have spiritual life and to bear fruit. Look at what he says in verse 5. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. We cannot bear fruit unless the Godhead abides in us and we abide in it. Verse 6 tells us that if we do not abide as a branch does into a stem, then we will be withered and cast out and thrown into the fire. Notice how that he brings his word in in verse 7. So what, why is He bringing in His Word? Abiding in Me and My words abide in you. Again, these things are connected. 
We have a Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We have their Word that has been revealed to us. As we said in the, early in the lesson, the Holy Spirit has had much activity in revealing God's will to mankind. From the very beginning, He worked behind the scenes to make sure that man had God's will delivered to him. And He's done that through the written Word. And today we plug in and we dwell in the Godhead as we dwell in His Word. 1 John 4, verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. If you go back to the beginning of 1 John, you will find that John is writing to Christians. And here he's referring to them as little children. He talks about the Spirit of God back in verse 2 of this same chapter. Now he comes to this verse and he contrasts Christians and non-Christians. He speaks of God being in the heart of the believer, and he says God is greater than he who dwells in the heart of a non-believer. So now we see another type of dwelling. Satan dwells in those who are not the children of God. And they dwell in Him. And I believe Satan dwells in those non-believers in a very similar way that God, the Godhead, dwells in the children of God. He that is in us, the Godhead dwelling within us, is greater than he that dwells in those of the world. Here he speaks of God being in the heart of the believer, and he said, God is greater than he who dwells in the heart of the non-believer. Does Satan dwell in people literally or directly? If that were the case, then people of the world would not be responsible for their sins. They could truly just blame it on Satan. We've heard people say, the devil made me do it. Like that people do not have a choice and that Satan comes in and dominates and causes people to do things against their will. This is not the case. Satan dwells in people by influencing them to follow his ways. He tempts people to do wrong and they fall to that temptation. Satan dwells in a continuation because a cycle of sin that develops in people and they make the choice to fall into this cycle of sin. This is done by temptation. If he had direct control, then people would not be able to practice free will. This seems to me to be very important in our discussion. Satan does not dwell in the people of the world in a different way from how God dwells in his people. John is contrasting God and Satan in these verses, but doesn't differentiate at all in the methods of dwelling. I want you to think about this question. Could we call this process of dwelling the co-mingling of two spirits? Could we call this dwelling the co-mingling of two spirits? Either God's Spirit with our spirit, or Satan's Spirit with our spirit. I believe that's an accurate scriptural way to look at this. I think it's interesting to consider demon possession from the New Testament and to notice that at that time the Holy Spirit granted power to dispel evil spirits. We read about that many times in the New Testament, how that those spirits were cast out. So God was greater at that time with His operation than what Satan was with his operation. And today God is greater... Not in the same sense, but He's greater than he that's in the world. I do not believe today that we have evil spirit possession. We don't need miracles to cast out evil spirits. It is by our will that we choose to mingle our spirit either with God or with Satan. So let's come to the point. 
How does He dwell in us today? We've read all these verses that say God's in us, Christ is in us, the Holy Spirit's in us, we need to be in them, we need to abide. But exactly what does the Bible say happens for us to be able to have the Spirit to dwell in us? Galatians 3, verse 2. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? This is a rhetorical question. Paul's asking again these Christians. He's saying, did you receive the Holy Spirit through works of the law, or did you receive it by the hearing of faith? Isn't that an interesting phrase, by the hearing of faith? What does that mean? That means that we have to choose to hear so that the Holy Spirit can come into us. He doesn't do that apart from us being willing to hear. I do not believe that faith is a direct operation of the Holy Spirit, but it's based on hearing. I believe that's what this teaches. Hearing what? Romans 10, verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So we're beginning to see that we invite this guest into our heart, and we do that by traveling down this pathway First, we must hear about who God and the Godhead is. Then we must begin to trust in that and believe in that. And that sets us on a course to where we obey God and they, God comes in us and dwells in us. To me, Ephesians 3, 16 through 20 is the most instructive passage in Scripture that we have in understanding how the Godhead dwells in us, how this indwelling occurs. So we want to read this, and then we're going to go back and, and break it down and look at each part. That He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with the might through His Spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. So let's go back to verse 16. The Father's Spirit is under discussion here. If you back up to verse 14, and you're going to see the Father is in reference here. But Paul says that he is asking the Father, according to His riches of His glory, that these Christians would be strengthened with might. How? Through His Spirit in the inner man. We read earlier how that the Godhead dwells in us in our heart. This is another term that reveals that it's in our inner man. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So here in verse 16, he uses inner man, and then he comes to verse 17 and he says, Christ may dwell in your heart. He speaks of His Spirit in verse 16, and then he comes down and he talks about Christ. Almost as they're interchangeable here. He talks about them dwelling in the heart. He talks about them dwelling in the inner man. And then, to me, what is very important is how Christ will dwell in our heart is through faith. This is the mechanism. This is not some cosmic force that we can't understand. This is a Godhead that loves us, that has given us every tool to embrace them, to learn of them, to obey them. And we have their dwelling, according to this verse, through faith. What does this faith, this true faith, offer? We can be rooted and grounded in love. 
We can know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God. Isn't that what we're talking about? We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We want to have all of everything that the Godhead has for His people. We want those blessings. We can have that when we develop our faith. When we trust in God. When we follow His will in every aspect of our life. Love at the center of what this dwelling is about. If you were here Wednesday night, we heard a lesson about love and how God is love and how Christ gave us a new commandment that we're to love one another as He loved us. And as we go further in these verses that we want to look at this morning, we're going to see how that love is intertwined. In faith, in love, we can be rooted, we can be grounded, we can be stable, we can have the dwelling that we all desire of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We want to be filled with all the fullness of God because we want a power that can work within us. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing for us today. We can answer the question, what is the work of the Holy Spirit in our time by saying that the Holy Spirit comes into us and dwells in us in a spiritual way, commingles with our spirit, and He provides us what we need to live a successful Christian life. He comes alongside us. He furnishes us power. Do you want to be plugged in to the power of God? This is a process in which we can do that. It doesn't involve miracles. It doesn't involve a direct operation of the Holy Spirit. It involves our will and our desire to love God with our heart, soul, body, and mind, to love our neighbor as ourself, and to dwell in God in the same way that He seeks to dwell in us. Faith based on the realities of God's Word will unleash the power of God to do His greatest work within us, to mold us into vessels which are meet for the Master's use. We're going to share a few of the functions of the Holy Spirit as it dwells in us, and these, these passages are listed. We're not going to take time to read all of these, but the Holy Spirit is working right now. He's working in our lives. The Bible tells us in Philippians 3 that He's involved in our worship. The Bible tells us that He helps us in our prayer. The Bible tells us that He bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. He helps in our infirmities and intercedes in our prayers with groanings that cannot be uttered. He seals us and is the earnest or down payment of our inheritance mentioned in several different passages in the New Testament. Look at this one. We are the epistle of Christ written by the Spirit in our heart. Do you realize that you are the letter of Christ, the message of Christ? That that's written in your heart through the Spirit? Did we say He was the one that revealed God's Word? His message, we go to His Word... We write His Word on our heart, and we become His epistle. The Spirit assists in that. He's there as a power to help us in all of these different ways. He will quicken our mortal bodies as He did Christ. Romans 8, verse 11. One day when Christ comes again, when this world is burned up, everyone is resurrected, the Spirit will be there and will be assisting in that. This is a short list of the function of the Holy Spirit. And none of these things have to do with miraculous power. They have to do with the Spirit working in us today. I looked and tried to make as complete a list as I could make. I came up with 32 different things that the Holy Spirit does. 
Most of these are in the New Testament. There's a few references here to the Old Testament. Some of these things were operations of the Holy Spirit in the first century. Most of these things on this list are things that He continues to do. A lot of times we back away from talking about the Holy Spirit. And I think part of it is just the scope of the subject. It's so big, we try to do some kind of comprehensive study to get a true feeling of the nature of the Holy Spirit, we fall short. We talked about His work through miracles in the first century. Today we're talking about His work with us in our day and time, and we still have only touched the surface. But I believe that it's very simple and very straightforward that the Spirit dwells in us, that He dwells in us through a process that we read about in Ephesians 3, and that we as His children of God can have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. Back up a few verses to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. Remember verse 17 of Ephesians 3 said that Christ dwells in us, in our heart, through faith. He's already been talking about faith. Just a few verses ahead of this. He says faith is a, is a very important point. That we can have boldness and access to God through the faith that we have in Him. We could go to all the verses in the Scripture that emphasize faith. We could show that faith is the foundation of our relationship with God. Faith is the motivation to obey. Faith is required throughout our relationship with God. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The just shall live by faith. Without faith it's impossible to please God. Certainly time would not allow us to study faith to the degree that we could show here that this is the key to God dwelling in us, the Holy Spirit's power being in us, and us dwelling in God. We have access, confidence through faith. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the Word of God. Colossians 3, verse number 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. This is a passage that we quote about one of those elements that God asks us to engage ourselves in in worship, to sing. But I want to notice specifically the first part of the verse. The Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Look at that word dwell. We talked about God dwelling. We talked about the Son dwelling. We talked about the Holy Spirit in an indwelling. And now we're reading about the Word dwelling within us. We need to allow the Word to dwell in us richly with all wisdom. Christ does not come either personally or literally to dwell in me. But when I invite Him in through going to His Word and building my faith and allow Him to set the decisions in my life, He dwells in me. I want you to stop and think about the power that we have as the children of God. We often struggle, we're often confused. We often can't see a path forward. And all the while, God, through Christ, through the Spirit, is within us, and we have access to what we need to do the right thing. It's not our righteousness. It's God's righteousness. 
And it's within us when we plug into it. That's our choice. And I hope that we will all make a commitment to do that. Romans 8, 13-16, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the Spirit, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Can we be bold about being the children of God? Can we come to God's throne with confidence, with boldness? Can we walk our daily life with confidence, knowing that we have the Spirit within us, leading us? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Does that mean the Spirit comes in and micromanages every move in our life? No, the Bible doesn't say the Spirit will drive. It says we will be led by the Spirit. We invite Him in, remember, as a guest. And He's there to lead us. We have to follow His lead. And we're going to stumble and we're going to have problems and we'll never follow perfectly, but the blood of Christ cleanses us. And if we are truly led by the Spirit, then we have this blessing as His children. 1 John 2, 4-5 He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whosoever keeps His word... Truly, the love of God is perfected in Him. By this, we know that we are in Him. How do we know we're in Him? Very straightforward. When we look at His Word, we embrace His Word, we objectively follow the commandments because of our motivation of love. As Christ said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. When we follow His Word, we know that we are in Him. This is not speculation or assumptions. This is what God's Word teaches. 1 John 3, verse 24, Now he who keeps His commandment abides in Him, and He in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. These verses are throughout 1 John, and they just keep coming up. And they keep emphasizing the same thing. We want to be in God. We want God to be in us. We want the Holy Spirit to be working in us. Then the way that we accomplish that is through developing faith and then abiding in these commandments and keeping His Word. This mutual indwelling occurs when we keep His commandments. He abides in us, and we abide in Him. 1 John 2, verse 24 to 25, Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. So what's the end result of all of these things we've been talking about this morning. Is it important that we understand the Holy Spirit as well as we understand the Son and the Father? Is it important that we understand they dwell in us? Is it important we understand how they dwell in us? Is it important that we understand how we dwell in them? All of these things are critically important. And we don't need to leave them up to some cosmic mysticism, but we need to take God's Word and we need to develop faith and we need to write it on our heart. Abiding, abiding, abiding. The end result is eternal life. We want every person that we know to go to heaven. We want every person that we have influence with to go to heaven. We've studied some keys that will help us be able to accomplish that goal. Our hearts need to be full. And I will tell you today, they're going to be full of something. 
Christ said you can't serve God and mammon. We can't split our heart in the center and put self on one side and the Holy Spirit on the other side. Christ said it's impossible. When we take a spot for Satan and we keep that open for him, it doesn't matter what we do in the direction of God. That co-mingling with the Spirit is being diluted because of Satan in that connection. We need to be filled up, but we need to be filled up with the right thing. Our heart needs to be full of the Father, of Christ, of the Holy Spirit, and of His Word. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. We see how the pieces of this puzzle fit perfectly together and how that there's a simplicity in the message of God, even with regard to the work of the Holy Spirit. God bless us each into determining how this applies for us. Let's work to be close to God, to dwell in Him in every way that we possibly can and to be filled with Him. The Holy Spirit, our supporter and guide, yes. Our helper and instructor, instructor, yes. Our intercessor, our advocate, yes. He lives today, He's active, and He's working in every Christian. Again, I want to ask what kind of relationship that you have with God? Where is your life in effect with the things that we've talked about this morning? If you've never named the Christ, the Christ, the only way, the way, the truth, and the life, you cannot have these blessings that we've talked about. You have to become a child of God. We want to encourage you, if you've been thinking about that, to take that step today, to believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, to be willing to make that confession, to repent of your past sins, and then be baptized for the remission of sins, and received the Holy Spirit through that decision. If you don't understand those steps and you need further information please allow us the benefit the blessing to sit down and study with you about this with an open bible this morning if you want to name the name of christ and become his child we would invite you to come if you would like the prayers of the church for strength or if we can help you in any way step forward and be seated here on the front as we sing the song selected